Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 15th, 2019. I guess we're technically switching it up today. Bad enough so-called prophetic words. Unfortunately, there's more of them coming. Let's see if we can find some other type of content to compare and contrast to the Word of God, shall we? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine, that's teaching, that's what doctrine is, by the way, teaching, that is put forward for consumption by the average evangelical, far from biblical, far from what God's Word says. There's a whole lot of deceiving going on out there, and a lot of people are being exploited financially by this, uh, by these false doctrines. So, yeah, you want to protect yourself because at the end of the day, the the greatest, the, the worst thing that can happen to you is not that you are out a few thousand dollars because you've sent in seed money in order to be blessed by God. <clears throat> Remember our segment that we did with um, Steve Muncy and Rod Parsley. No, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you believe these heretical teachings and uh, and you are believing a false gospel and trusting in a false Jesus Christ. That will result in you, well, losing your soul, yeah, ending up in the fires of hell. So we want to save you that kind of fate. And the devil is a liar, and he sent his agents into the church in order to deceive people, to uh, deceive, if possible, even the elect, and to uh, lead everybody astray. So the, the, the devil's in the business of sowing tares among the wheat, if you would, and that's the problem. So we uh, we try to offer a corrective along those lines. So let's talk about what we're going to do on this installment of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, we're going to be doing a um, 
a, uh, a vision-casting leader update as we uh, listen to Jürgen Mathesius of C3 Church in San Diego, and we're going to sample part of his message titled Vision Keepers, Vision Keepers. And apparently, you know, he's decided that it, it's not just enough that uh, somebody receives, uh, you know, a, a vision for the church that we all need to be receiving visions for our individual lives as well. Yeah, we'll note that uh, what he's saying is not biblical, but has become a staple within uh, much of evangelicalism. Then we'll uh, be doing a purpose-driven update. We're going to be listening to Rick Warren and uh, sampling a portion of his message titled, Timing is Everything. Timing is Everything. And have you considered you know, the importance of timing as it relates to your purpose and your destiny and stuff like that? You don't look at me like that. I I can feel your eyeballs through the podcast here. You know, it coming up through the microphone. You're looking at me weird. Yeah. Well, don't don't blame me. Blame Rick Warren. We'll have him and try to explain all of that. Then we'll do a Hillsong update as we check in with Brian Houston, and he's going to teach us about destiny connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, destiny connections, which is a weird, by the way, really manipulative. Uh, twisting of the story of the 12 spies who, in from uh, Numbers, what, 13 and 14, who went to go spy out the land of Canaan and uh, and what happened you know, badly regarding that. And then uh, we'll be, uh, in hour number two, checking in with Glenn Barrett of Audacious Church and, um, and his message, you have to believe for greater. You have. You, you must, you apparently, you, this is a requirement now. God is requiring you to believe for greater. Are you believing for greater? And you're going, well, if I have to believe for greater, how great does it have to be? I mean, before God will be happy with me. I mean, will he be upset with me if I'm not believing for great enough? You know, what if I'm only believing for great-ish rather than greater? I, you know, <laughs> you get the idea. So that will be today's installment of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. we got a lot of ground we need to cover. And since we're going to begin with a vision-casting leader update, let's do this. Mama! 
tonight's the night. I'm gonna take the word and twist it. Vision Casting Leader Update Music. We're heading over to C3 Church in San Diego. We'll be listening to Jurgen Mathesius as he literally is supposedly casting vision. The name of the uh, message in question, again, is Vision Keepers. And uh, see if we can make any biblical sense of this. Here is Jurgen Mathesius. Give two or three people a high five. Bless them. Love them. One more time, can we thank the musicians and the singers? I've got to tell you the praise and worship. If heaven is better than that, we are in for a real treat. Amen. Amen. Well, Vision Sunday is one of my favorite Sundays. I love Vision Sunday. <laughs> you know, you, you just have to ask the question. Vision Sunday, how long has that been in the church? Because when you read through the uh, the church fathers, there was no Vision Sunday back in the ancient church. Yeah, this is a very, 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 very recent thing, like 21st century recent. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the Bible does not teach that uh, pastors are supposed to receive a unique vision from God that they are then supposed to cast to the uh, people in their congregation, and then they need to join in and make that vision happen. It's not taught in the Bible anywhere, and the church historically has never had this as a practice. Uh, Most places, just so you know, most places, and this is how I was kind of... uh... By most places, I think he means most places that actually believe in the false doctrine of vision casting. When I finally did get saved is that Vision Sunday was all about the pastor telling the church the vision so y'all can get behind the vision of the church. Yeah, that's aptly communicated. Again, this is a very recent development in church history, not a biblical practice, not based upon a biblical doctrine. And then I remember, I think we might have even done that in the first Sunday, and then the second year, 2006, we're coming up to Vision Sunday, and the team is saying, hey, pastor, what are you doing for Vision Sunday? I'm like, well, it hasn't changed. I don't need to do a repeat of last year. It hasn't changed. So uh, so we we then actually, I've actually felt the Holy Spirit say, no, 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 get people to fill out their vision cards. And then I had a- uh, Yeah, notice what he just said there. Yeah, so the Holy Spirit told him, yeah, when it comes to Vision Sunday, 
It's no longer merely about recommunicating the unique vision that God has given to your vision casting leader. Now, 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 it's the Holy Spirit wants you to fill out your own vision cards. By the way, that's blasphemy what he just did there. Blaming this on God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit did not teach nobody in the church to do this and wasn't communicating that to Eurgamathesius either. You, you know, if you well-meaning friends try and tell me, oh, no, you don't want to do that. Because more than one vision is division. You know, that, that, was, the, that was a mentality. But here's the honest to God truth. Here's the honest to God truth. I think that uh, a church cripples itself when the pastor says the only person allowed to have vision is me. I think that... Yeah, whether or not you think that a church is crippling itself, you know, regardless of whether or not it's, it's a unique vision, that a singular vision for the pastor or a vision for individuals plus the pastor's vision, none of this is biblical, and this is division from sound biblical teaching greatest thing you can do as a pastor is release vision in your people when you're when you're leading uh, when you really the greatest thing you can do as a pastor is release vision in your per people in your purple people <laughs> yeah um i don't see that in scripture anywhere but uh, pastoring and leading a church full of visionaries full of dreamers full of entrepreneurs inventors full of innovators full of pioneers for come on somebody you, you i want i want you to know that god wants you to dream he does huh um where in scripture does it teach that god wants me to dream god will meet you at your your dream point oh <laughs> Uh-oh. Um, can you identify where that dream point is? Can I find it on, like, Apple Maps? Maybe not Apple Maps. Can I find it on Google Maps? If I were to call an Uber and say, listen, I, I have an appointment with God, and he wants to meet me at my dream point, would my Uber driver be able to help me identify and locate that particular place where God wants to meet me at? Let me back that up. I mean, that was just a totally nonsensical statement on the part of Jurgen Mathesius. And the people there, of course, in the bullpen are going, ooh, whoa, ooh. Yeah, which is a form of manipulation, you know, as if somehow he's, you know, dropping pearls from heaven here when all these are basically, you know, cow turds. But we continue. Pioneers for, yeah. come on, somebody. Yeah. You, you, I, I, want, I want you to know that God wants you to dream. Uh-huh. God will meet you at your, your dream point. No. God will meet you at your dream point. So on this on your seat is this card, and there's a quote from, from my book, Those Who See the Invisible Achieve the Impossible. <laughs> a quote from Jurgen's book. Yeah, that, that couldn't be a shameless plug there, could it? Grab, grab this, and you don't have to fill it out yet unless God is already speaking to you. And uh, but. Yeah, go ahead and fill that out. Well, don't fill it out yet. Well, unless, you know, God is already talking to you, you know. If you're one of those special people that God has already begun speaking to, then you can go ahead and fill it out. Who, who are we to stop God, you know? I want to give you, give you three quick thoughts. So the first scripture I want to give to you, just so everything's hung on a scripture, is Proverbs 29, 18. Proverbs 29, 18, most of you will know this. It says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but... Yeah, that, this, by the way, is, you know, a completely tortured passage of Scripture. Um, and 
this passage is not teaching vision casting. So Proverbs 29, 18 is the text in question. And uh, when you look at it, it's pretty simple to figure out what's going wrong here. And it's just a simple matter of like context, context, context. But in this particular case, the context just requires you to pay close attention to the rest of the sentence. Because if you've read through the book of Proverbs, then you know that oftentimes that there are in, you know, sentences make up the point of what it is that a particular proverb is saying. And so uh, you'll have chapters, especially in the latter part of the book of Proverbs, where you, individual sentence w- sentences will comprise a total thought. So uh, Proverbs 29.18 in the ESV, the English Sanctified Version, as, as I like to call it, says, Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, comma, yeah, there's a comma. You know, punctuation counts, which means that that's not a complete thought. But blessed is he who keeps the law or the Torah. In other words, the prophetic vision that we're to be looking to, which will keep us from casting off restraint, is not some unique vision that God's supposed to give us at the beginning of every year where we write it down and, you know, and things like that. No, the prophetic vision that God wants to give us yeah, the cast the, so that we do not cast off restraint is found in the written word of God. Yeah, that's literally how that works. But we continue. In another translation, I think it might be the NIV, the NIV. It says, uh, "Without a vision, the people people perish." Actually, it might be the New King James. It is the New King James. The New King James says, "Without a vision, the people perish." Comma, yeah, now he'll read out the rest of the verse. That a vision, the people perish. How many people notice that your eyes are in the front of your head? Yeah, you got to read the rest of the verse, Jurgen. I know you're going to do that, but yeah, the, the whole thought is not about some vision that you're supposed to have. So, oh no, if, and notice the way he's teaching this. If I don't have some unique vision on Vision Sunday, then I, whoa, then, you know, I might perish. No. Your eyes are in the front of your head because you're meant to be looking forward. You, you and I are meant to be forward-looking people. A lot of people live with their eyes in the back of their head. You ever met the people they in the good old days? I remember back when I was a... Yeah, Proverbs 29, 18 has nothing to do with the good old days. Young whippersnapper. You know, like, that's awesome that there were good days back then. But can I just tell you, with God, your best days are still ahead of you. If by best days you mean, like, in the new earth, yeah. Uh, indeed. The Bible says the way of life winds upward for the, for the righteous, brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. Your best day is in front of you. Some Christians live with their eyes on the side of their heads. Always. What are you talking about? Comparing. How come she's got, how come they got, man, I can't believe that. And we're trying to keep up with the Joneses and it's the rat race. The Bible says we are not wise when we compare ourselves one to another. God wants you to have a vision for your life. It doesn't matter what's happening. Yeah. Proverbs 29, 18 doesn't teach that. The person on your left, person on your right. The only thing that's, that, that matters is what is God doing in you? What is God speaking to you? What is God doing in your own heart and in your own life? Get a vision for your life. Yeah, like we've been pointing out, uh, Proverbs 29 says nothing about this, and, and he's filling these people's heads with complete and utter nonsense. 
None of this is taught in Scripture. Notice he's not calling them to repent, not calling them to uh, be forgiven for their sins, not pointing them to Jesus or anything that the Bible actually says. Yeah, no, you, you, it's time for you to have a unique vision for your life. Thus saith the Lord, except for the Lord hasn't thus saith. <clears throat> you get the point. Moving along. Yeah, time for a purpose-driven update. I don't know how I know, but I'm going to find my purpose. I don't know where I'm going to look, but I'm going to find my purpose. Got to find out, don't want to wait, got to make sure that my life will be great. Got to find my purpose. Before it's too late. Yeah, that's right. That can only mean one thing. We're heading over to Saddleback Church. We're going to be checking in with one of the master twisters of Scripture himself, uh, vision casting leader, Rick Warren of the Purpose Driven Movement. And uh, apparently God wants to teach us something about the importance of timing. Okay, sure. Um, Except for I'm pretty sure after my initial pass through this teaching that uh, what Rick was saying is not what God's Word says. So without any further ado, here's Rick Warren, and um, learn how timing is everything. Here we go. Now, if you take out your message notes, today I want to finish a message that I, I started at Christmas, actually on the importance of cooperating with God's timing in your life. Okay, see, I'm immediately scratching my head. What? At Christmas, you preached a sermon? i got to find this thing, but not today. About cooperating with God's timing for your life. If I had to guess off the top of my head, how much you want to bet that uh, that sermon was based on a twisting of uh, the the announcement that uh, Mary, the virgin, would uh, give birth to Christ. Just saying, it's probably what went down. But we continue. Uh, We're starting this new series on foundation of a life well-lived. And I want to start with talking about the timing in your life. Remember at Christmas, I said that every great accomplishment involves the element of timing. You know, there are a lot of football playoffs on now these days. And and a, a successful catch in a football game requires incredible timing between a quarterback uh, and the receiver. And you, you know, off the top of my head, I just can't think of all those important, you know, timing passages in the Bible, you know, where if you want to live a life well lived, you know, you're going to have to learn the importance of timing. Yeah, okay. If they don't have the timing spot on, yeah, there's just no reception. There's no, there's no uh, touchdown. No, uh, the same is true in business success. Whether right, it's, it's the same is true with my truck. When the timing belt is off, bad things are happening in my combustion engine. So timing, you know, it's everything, you know, an investment or or whether it's a new project or a new uh, a new plan, good timing in the market. Uh, good timing and knowing when to hire, when to expand. Uh, How is this a biblical teaching? I'm sure he'll get to it, but um, if you're thinking, oh yeah, Rick Warren, he's a solid Bible teacher. He, 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 he correctly teaches God's word. You know, he's conservative and stuff. 
he might be politically conservative, but he is theologically as liberal as they get. Timing is everything in business success. Yeah. Same thing in music. If you're a singer, if you're a musician, uh, you must know how to keep time. If you can't keep time, please get off the stage. Right. One into two into three. And yeah, that's why I'm not a musician. Because timing is everything. Now, when I wrote the book Purpose Driven Church many, many years ago, the first chapter of that book in Purpose Driven Church is called Surfing Spiritual Waves. And it's Cowabunga, dude. Got to surf some spiritual waves. Yeah. In that chapter, I compare leadership uh, to surfing. And uh, the, 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 the parallel is this. Surfers don't try to create waves. No surfer goes out and goes, let's go make some waves today. Surfers can't create waves. Only God cre- can create waves. Surfers wait for the waves that God creates. And for 30 now, nine years, we've done that here at Saddleback Church. The Bible calls it walking in the spirit. We don't. (laughs) Boy, he just tried to sneak that one in there, but I was quick. I was really quick on the stop button there. Walking in the spirit, huh? Yeah. See, surfing spiritual waves that God makes, that's called walking. No, it's not. You just made that up. And try to make waves. What we do is look around and say, what is God doing in the world? And then we say, there's a wave coming and we want to jump on that and go with that. But it all. Yeah. Back in the day, I I did an expose of uh, how the purpose driven movement does these hostile takeovers of local churches. And um, and uh, it is part of this. You know, we covered this particular teaching here of Rick Warren, but it was uh, in the mouth of a different guy, uh, a guy who worked with Transitions Inc. I have to see if I could dig that up and put it in the uh, in the in the description for this episode of Fighting for the Faith. So uh, you know, we'll see if we can find that. But um, yeah, so this is all based upon a weird twisting of Henry Blackaby's teaching, uh, and uh, Henry Blackaby took a passage from uh, John chapter 5, totally ripped it out of context, where Jesus basically says, you know, I can only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. And, uh, and so he, Blackaby said, we've got to do that same thing. We've, we should only be doing what we see God is doing. And then Rick kind of extrapolates that twisting of Scripture that Blackaby had and, and turned it into a principle within the purpose-driven church that, you know, that the, here, here's the basic idea. As a leader in a, in a church, you should never come to God with your plans. No, 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 no. God's not going to listen to your plans. He's, your plans are, are, you know, they're, they're doo-doo. God's not interested in your plans. What you need to d- learn how to do is, you know, walk in the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit requires you to look around, scan the horizon, see what God is doing, and then you join Him. And, and so uh, Dan Sutherland was the guy of uh, Church Transitions, Inc., who uh, was the one teaching this. And oh my goodness. And, and so I'll put a link to it in the description, you know, to uh, to the, the, the expose we did on Dan Sutherland's uh, Church Transitions, Inc. And it's, it's just absolutely mind-boggling. The Bible doesn't teach this at all. You know, go find what God's doing in the world and then join him. And, uh, you know, what was funny is, is that Dan Sutherland in the Church Transitions, Inc. seminar 
was uh, you know citing Yonggi Cho of Korea as an example of what God was doing in the world, and and so we needed to join in. And you know, and and Sutherland was really really emphatic about this idea. Don't come to God with your plans. You know, God's going to basically say no to that. You see, I'm doing this over here. Come join me. Is his thing, and the Bible nowhere teaches this doctrine. So as pious as this sounds, this is straight up mysticism nonsense, and it's not based on anything taught in Scripture for real. It has to do with timing. When you're a surfer, you spend a lot of your time actually just waiting, and you see a wave come in. Go, no, we're not going to catch that one. No, we're not going to catch that one. We're not going to catch that one. And then you go, here comes a big wave, and you get ready. And about the right time, you have to have the exact timing to start paddling and paddling faster and faster. And then you catch that wave. Yeah. You ride that wave, and then you know how to, need to know how to get off the wave yeah. without wiping out. Surfing looks easy, but it's actually quite complicated. Yeah, notice he began with the analogy, which, by the way, is backwards. It's okay to use illustrations in a sermon. Totally, totally legitimate way of teaching. The issue here is that sermon illustrations are supposed to um, be used to help you understand what a biblical text is saying and what a biblical text means. So what Rick Warren is doing here is starting with the sermon illustration and then drawing his conclusion and then going to take his conclusion that he drew from his illustration and then impose that on the biblical text. Yeah, that's about as backwards as you can get. I mean, that's like putting the caboose in front of the engine and expecting the caboose to pull your train. See, it doesn't work that way. So you see... It's the you know, surfers. You know, it's, they, they don't go out there and they don't make the waves. No, no, no. Surfers never do that. Surfers, they, they sit out there and they wait. They're very patient people. They're, they're in their wetsuits and they're talking to each other. And they say things like, dude. And then the other one says to the other, dude. And then they see a wave and they go, dude. Yeah. And, and, and so as soon as they, and as soon as everyone says, Dude, then they all get ready and they get on the wave and they ride it. And of course, people get mad, especially once you when you uh, jump on a wave, you know, you cut somebody else off. But anyway, and so that that's how surfing works, right? But see, again, that's an illustration from modern day life, and now he's creating a doctrine from that that we've got to ride the. We, it's the same way we got to see what God's doing. He's going to create waves, and then we got to ride them. No text teaches this all right we're gonna pause uh, rick warren right there pay some bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian quick break when we come back a little bit more of uh, rick warren and then uh, we'll check in with uh, brian houston and Destiny Connections. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the This is the air I breathe. 
I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Deep in the Australian wilderness and also the typhoid infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already. We don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. Now, gentlemen, the hour is dying. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, Mommy, Mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy. Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have... In my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. Woo-hoo. No, no, no. We're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, It says this. With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. Are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, h- how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. Captain Worthington, a book approaching! Blasted! Perkins, get your act together and start reading from the book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Which one do you have to choose from? Well, there's the Scenting Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. The Circle One. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray, audaciously. Oh, Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Thank God, Nigel! Are you sure? Pretty sure. Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, sir? Well, the circle prayer didn't work, so let's try something else. Perkins! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it, sir. The Hubuku the, Drive, they now have catapults. Jumping Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the, uh, it's the Sun Sand Soap Prayer. What good will that do? 
It's in the middle of the night! It doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man. Get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet raptor, no debts, Ooh, and better sex. You're just not getting this, are you? Captain, they, 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 Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that uh, quoting out of context verses and starting with your illustration to teach a doctrine rather than the Word of God is no bueno. Just a reminder Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we 
depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. And rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at 24 95 a month from there, Master Gunner at 49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster 99.95 a month. Joining our crew, great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the become a patron button. And if you'd like to support us the traditional way, you could do so by making your gift payable too. Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here's a little bit more of uh, Rick Warren, and timing is everything. Here we go. It requires a lot of balance. It requires a lot of skill. Yeah, and timing. Now, the same is true as in in life, that you have to have a certain kind of skill to understand timing in your life, timing on every detail of your life. Now, look at this verse at the top of your outline. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 6, there is a right time and there is a right way to do everything. But we know so little. Everybody? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that Rick Warren does, um, if you've read The Purpose Driven Life, again, I apologize if you have, you were deceived when you did read it. Um, but if you noted that he, he, he engages in this very interesting technique. And so here's how the technique works. He begins with his illustration, draws his doctrine from that, and then goes and hunts and finds a biblical text to support the doctrine that he found in his illustration, and the illustration was given without a biblical text. And then the funny thing is, is that he, when he can't find a, you know, it, let's say he doesn't, he doesn't work from like the ESV. He doesn't work from the King James. He doesn't work from the New King James or the New Century Edition or the NASB. No, he what he does is he finds the translation that best fits his doctrine that he's teaching. And so as he preaches, he preaches from all of them out of context and he he changes. So right now, the today's English version, there is a right time and a right way to do everything, but we know so little. How much do would you like to bet that when I open up Ecclesiastes chapter eight and apply the three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, context, and context, that this isn't teaching that we need to learn how to apply timing in our life in the way that he's describing it. You know, I wouldn't bet against me on this, but I'm just saying. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, let's head over there, shall we? Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we'll start at verse 1, see if we can note what's going on. And I'm going to stay in one translation, the ESV. And here's what it says. Now, who is like the wise, Solomon writes? Who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? 
Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Yeah, you see, you see, see what Solomon was doing right there? And see, in that section right there in Ecclesiastes, yeah, this was uh, his observation of what was done under the sun regarding when man had power over another man for his harm. Yeah. So uh, Rick Warren here is uh, just decided, I'm going to hunt and pack, and he searches long and hard and wide. Ah, the today's English version. I can make it look like it's teaching this idea about the importance of timing. You know, how timing is everything. But, yeah, that's not what Ecclesiastes 8.6 is teaching. Agree with that verse? There's a right time and a right way to do everything, but we know so little. And what this verse is saying is that we can get it wrong. We can do the right thing in the wrong timing. We can do have the right timing and do it in the wrong way. It takes skill. <laughs> Clearly, you don't have any when it comes to rightly handling God's word. The, the, the skill of life, of knowing how to time, to follow God's timing, to, to follow the Spirit, is a skill that can be learned. That's Yeah, um, uh, note again, this text has nothing, nothing, nothing whatsoever to do with learning God's timing of the Spirit and things like that. Not what Ecclesiastes was, was talking about. So Rick is over there basically rolling his own theology and smoking it and uh and you know and the the paper the zigzag paper around his uh whatever he's smoking is the bible text itself you just just wrap that wrap that thing up and yeah baby so uh yeah this is this is really weird here of course keep in mind certain things are legal in california that are not legal in other parts of the united states a good thing skills can be learned mm mm-hmm. Now, there is a rhythm. There's a rhythm to life. There is a rhythm to love. Actually, there's a rhythm to leadership. What? I've got rhythm. Anyway. Wise people know how to cooperate with that rhythm of when to speed up, when to slow down. So how do I tap into these rhythms, you know? When to go fast, when to go slow. Spiritually, as I I said, it's called walking in the Spirit. Can you show me that from the Bible, please? And the more you grow as a follower of Christ, the more you're going to understand and get better at walking in the Spirit, which involves... (laughs) Rick Warren is... So you need to learn how to, you know, be wise and 
be in sync with the rhythms of life and love and leadership and stuff. But that's going to take you to learn. You, you need to go on a spirit walk. Right. Uh-huh. Following God's timing. You learn to sense when to go fast and when to go slow. I learn to sense when to go fast, when to go slow. Do I reach out with my feelings, tap into the force, you know, let go, Luke. Is, is that what you're saying? <sighs> now, you know, we're facing a brand new year here. And I thought one of the first skills you need to learn in a foundation for a life well lived is knowing how to cooperate with God's timing. Know when to speed up, know when to slow down. Of course, the Bible has a lot to say about it. Did you? <laughs> uh, yeah, no. No. Yeah, this is... Yeah, there's no way to recover this uh, teaching. He's off the reservation. It's just another travesty is the best way I could put it. Moving along. Praise the Lord for all the cash I've got. Praising for my Rolls Royce and my yacht. Serving God ain't hard with a credit card. Jesus died so I could make a lot. Praise the Lord, He's made us millionaires. Wave your donations in the air. We've replaced our hymns with ATMs, and soon we'll charge a fee on every prayer. Jesus Christ was a poor man, don't you know? He should have used our accountants for his cash flow. Stop the sermon on the mount, he should have had a bank account. Two thousand years with interest, he'd be rolling in the dough. Praise the Lord, this song's out on CD, just forty ninety five plus GST. Hallelujah, Lenny and Moolah, solid gold baubles on my Christmas tree. I've got all of heaven's riches, thanks to all you stupid Praise the Lord for modern Christianity, yeah. Whoever said religion should be free. Yeah, that's right. Praise the Lord and bless. Pass the offering plate. It's uh, heading down to um, Hillsong. So um, in this particular segment, we'll be uh, checking in with Brian Houston as he was preaching at uh, Hillsong Paris, and uh, that's about the extent of my French right there. And the name of the uh, sermon we'll be listening to is titled Destiny Connections. Destiny Connections. And this one's a weird one and a strange twisting of the account from the book of Numbers of the 12 spies who went to spy on Cana. And uh, there's some manipulation going on, kind of heavy-handed manipulation. Uh, but you're going to note there's no real preaching of God's law clearly to convict anybody of any real sins that they've committed. Christ and him crucified for our sins is not placarded as the solution that we need for the ways in which we've transgressed God's law, and uh, nor is there a clear call to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Instead, this is a great example 
of uh, scratching, itching ears in, in, in a way that is kind of fascinating in this sense that um, if you think back to the uh, Old Testament, the competing idols that uh, Israel kept uh, f- being ensnared by, by you know the, the gods of the uh, Philistines and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Girgashites and the Uptites and the Balletites and all, the, all those people, those tight ones, uh, that uh, that those their deities, their false gods, were oftentimes fertility deities, and so in a very fascinating way, uh, Hill, uh, Brian Houston here is going to be subtly turning the God of the Bible into something akin to a fertility deity. I'll see if I can explain it along the way. Here's Brian Houston and Destiny Connections. I don't want to talk to you about Destiny Connections. And I talked about fathering and fatherhood. And what an honor, what a joy it is to be a dad, to be a parent. Some of you are not yet a dad or a parent, but you will be one day. And I believe this message applies to not only your future, but the future of your children, your descendants, grandchildren that you don't even know yet. All right. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, you're going to be a dad someday. and You're probably not a grandpa yet, but... You know, someday you 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 will be, and man, you you want you want your children and your children's 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 children to you know be properly set up for success, don't you? Well, I mean, the decisions you make today, these destiny connections that you you know that you are engaged in right now, can make or break you know future generations of your posterity that you may not even know is going to exist. You know, because, I mean, we only live for so long, you know. And so I'm talking about destiny connections. It was not too much under 40 years ago when, for the very first time, I became a dad. My son Joel was born in a hospital near central Sydney called St. Margaret's. He was born at 24 inches long, which we worked out as 61 or 62 centimeters. He was tall and he was over 10 pound, which is something like 4.7 kilograms. He was heavy. He was tall and he was heavy. You know something? I don't know that I've ever felt taller than I felt that day when I was just so filled with pride that I was a dad. I had a son, but I also felt heavy. The weight of responsibility. All of a sudden, here's another life. And my input, Bobby's input on this life can literally, literally shape this life. I think fatherhood, you feel so tall, but you also feel the weight of responsibility, which is good because our lives, our decisions, my life, my decisions, go a long way to shaping the lives of those who come after me. Now, so far, I mean, granted, he he hasn't opened a biblical text, but what he said is true in and of itself. I mean, there's nothing scandalous, wrong, heretical, or anything about what he said. The, the idea of taking the responsibility of parenthood, in, in this particular case, fatherhood very seriously, considering the weight of the responsibility of being a father and the impact that it can have not only on your children, but you know, on down through the generations. Okay, sure, not a problem. So that's the setup. But watch where he goes with this when we eventually get to the Bible. 
And you know, we as a church, the way we live our lives now are setting the pace, setting the direction for the generations, the Hillsong Church that are going to come after us until Jesus comes again. And so I spoke in Australia two or three weeks ago about the 12 spies in Numbers 13 and Numbers 14. Ten of those spies, of course, they could only see giants when God gave them promise and they turned back from... See, now there's something a little bit abstract there. It's subtle, but I'm going to point it out. Um, And the reason why he's made it abstract is so that he can take this text from the book of Numbers and then find a way to manipulate it in in such a way as if it's some kind of an allegory for your life today. So so notice what he said there. He said that they had promise. No, 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 no. They had specific promises. They had very specific promises from God. But notice he said they had promise, but all they could see were giants. And so now he's abstracted the, you know, the, the, the kind of what's going on in the text already. And this is in order to set up then how he's going to scratch their ears and turn the one true God into a, a kind of fertility deity. The promised land, all that God had for them, two of them, Caleb and Joshua. They were entirely different. The Bible says that Caleb had a different attitude and his different attitude literally changed the future of not only him, but his descendants, those who came after him. And listen, at first they responded like this in chapter 13, verses 27 to 30. This was the report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore and it is indeed a bountiful country. Magnifique. (laughs) A land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. And they showed him the incredible fruitfulness of the land. Well, listen to that again. They called it a land flowing with milk and honey. Does that mean there was milk everywhere and honey everywhere? It's actually a metaphor for God's blessing. It painted a picture of an extraordinary fertile land. In other words, it was absolutely dripping, oozing with God's promise. That was the... Mm, Yes. Notice notice what he did there then. Now, here's an issue. And this one is uh, legitimately easy for Christians to miss. But it's imperative that if they have missed it, that they don't continue missing it. And that is that the promised land in the Old Testament is a type and a shadow. It is a symbol pointing not to some kind of promise you know, for your specific life today. No, the promised land of the Old Covenant is a type and shadow pointing to the real land of promise, which is the new earth. Now you're sitting there going, now, Rosebro, you're, you're going to have to prove that. Mm-hmm, I am fully aware of that. So if you have your Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 11, the great whole of faith passage. And Hebrews chapter 11 specifically lays out, and in, in unambiguous terms, that the promised land, the physical promised land, that postage stamp size piece of property 
out there on the uh, the eastern part of the Mediterranean between Egypt and Syria, that's not the promised land that the patriarchs were looking for. It actually says that. But let me prove it to you. So Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith, faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, by faith, people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. And uh, now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For who would ever draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, from here, the the author of Hebrews then explains how Noah, you know, had faith and he built an ark and that by faith, Abraham obeyed, verse 8, when he was called to go to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she had passed, was past the age. And since she considered him faithful, who had promised, therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable gradients of sand by the seashore. And verse 13 is critical here, then. These all died in faith, not, not having received the things promised, but having seen them greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And you can see it now. The Old Testament promised land is a type and shadow of the new earth, whose capital is the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that comes out of heaven. That's what the promised land is pointing to. Now, Brian Houston here in this teaching has pulled a fast one, and he's not given a proper understanding of what the promised land in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers, is in reality referring to. And so he's pointed out the fact that the, it was described as a land flowing with milk and honey, and this is basically you know, a symbol then of God's promise for their life. Let me back it up just a little bit, and you can hear what he said, and then we'll keep going. It's actually a metaphor for God's blessing. It painted a picture of an extraordinary fertile land. In other words, it was absolutely dripping, oozing with God's promise. That was the land. But this side of heaven, there's no such thing as utopia. Now, that's true. Now, here's the funny thing. What he's going to do next here, he's going to steer dangerously close 
to accidentally figuring out what the promised land is referring to. Because it says this side of heaven, this side of, you know, while we're on this side of the resurrection and the return of Christ, there is no utopia on earth. Right. And even if there were, we sure do have super short lives. You know what I mean? And so this idea that, you know, uh, that uh, the promised land would refer to anything transient in this transient world that we live in, which is going to be destroyed when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. That can't be what it's referring to. So watch how he dangerously comes close to actually figuring out that this is actually pointing to something that isn't in this present time-space continuum. But this side of heaven, there's no such thing as utopia. Utopia is this place of perfect bliss. It's this place of absolutely no difficulty, no challenge, just harmony. No sin, no death, you know, things like that. No sickness, disease, uh uh-huh. Bliss. There is a place like that. It's called heaven. Right. Which is the promised land for Christians who trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, technically, it's not heaven. But it's heaven come down to earth. Read the end of the book of Revelation. You'll, you'll see what I mean. Amen. It's eternity. Yeah. And so in the dictionary, you look up utopia, and it talks about the Garden of Eden. Well, the Garden of Eden, of course, is where Adam and Eve fell. And today, it's, it's desert in Iraq. That is the Garden of Eden. So, oh, this land of milk and honey for your life, your future, for all that God has got for you. Believe me, it's not utopia. There's giants. There's challenges. Um, The promised land for me and all other Christian believers is the new earth. And uh, it, 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 like for me, right, you know, I, I live in North Dakota, right? So, you know, the promised land ain't North Dakota. I'm just saying, and it's been really cold here lately. So, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. There's difficulties. It's not as though we just got this wonderful promise and everything is always, always beautiful, wonderful. Every person listening to me now, you have your giants. You have those things in your life you have to overcome. What? No. Uh, Well, actually, now that I think about it, I am a Dodger fan. Yeah, that's right. I've been rooting for the Los Angeles Dodgers since I was a, a wee little lad, you know. And um, and so, in my case, th- there are always giants, and they're very rotten and terrible people. So, <laughs> yeah, I I remember the one time I traveled to uh, <clears throat> San Francisco and went behind the orange curtain, and uh, I, I was wearing Dodger blue, and I was surrounded in a sea of giants so uh but i don't think that's what he's referring to and you'll note then if you understand what um what the real promised land is you recognize this is not a tenable way of handling god's word but the difference between the 10 they dislocated themselves they disconnected themselves from promise because all they could see was the challenge and the job they, they disconnected themselves from promise just just promise in general notice again this is in the abstract promise they disconnected from promise 
because all they could see were giants. And so the, so you can see where the application is coming. Yeah, yeah you you got to embrace the promise that God has for you. Yeah, and, and, and embracing the promise that God has for you, you, you know, you got to stop looking at your giants and stuff. And, uh, and, 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 and then, of course, he'll have to circle back around and say, you've got to do this for the kids because this started all about being a parent and a father. Yeah, really weird. Um, this is not a call to faith in Christ for the true promises that we have of the forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation with the Father, life eternal on the new earth. This is something really different. Whereas the two chose to not even talk about giants, they could just see promise. Listen, it's in Numbers 13. I'll read a few of these verses so you get the idea. It's all from Numbers 13 and Numbers 14. In verse 28, the people living there are powerful, the ten spies said. And their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. He's like, let's go at once to take the land. We can certainly overcome it. We can certainly conquer it. You know, the Bible talks about Caleb's different attitude. I wonder how different your attitude is, my attitude is, to the... My attitude. My attitude regarding what? I have a really bad attitude regarding this twisting of God's word and this thing that you're supposedly putting out there as a sermon. ...around and about us. Our attitude towards God's promise and towards the challenges that stand in the way of God's promise is so critical for ourselves. The challenges that stand in the way of God's promise... Again, abstract. What, what, which promise is that? You know, God's promise for your promised land. Don't let, let those giants get in the way of it, you know. And he's like, hmm, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And I'll say it one more time. For those who come after us, for those children that maybe you don't even know yet, don't underestimate the importance of your spirit and your attitude and what you choose to focus on. And yeah, don't focus on your giants because your, your unborn children's children's children are depending on you to have a good attitude. Huh? Whether or not you're going to live by what you feel, they felt like grasshoppers. They said even the other people, these giants themselves thought we were grasshoppers. They were ruled by what they could see, what they felt. You'll notice this is also a form of narcissism. Yeah, narcissistically reading yourself into the text and allegorizing it in a just bizarre way. Those things. But in Numbers 14, verse 24, my servant Caleb has a different attitude than the others have. He has remained loyal. That's a powerful word. Loyal to God and to Moses. So I will bring him into the land he explored. Here it is. Listen to the promise. His descendants will possess their full share not just a little touch, their full share of that land. Yeah, that was, in this particular case, pointing to an actual land that his actual descendants for real inherited, and still that was a type and shadow of the coming new earth. I, I care about my children. 
Most do, yeah. Care about my seven grandchildren. I care about the future. I pray every day that God will give them the full share of what he has planned and purposed for their lives. And Give them the full share of what God has planned and purposed for their lives. So now the promised land is now a, a, a full share of the promise of your purpose. Yeah. Yeah, I think you get the point. This is just totally off the rails. In much the same way that Rick Warren's sermon was off the rails. He's not rightly handling this text at all. And so now we've got a problem, and that is is that to what he's done, he just absolutely has destroyed, destroyed the, the teaching of this text. I'll start at Numbers 13. Uh, you know, the, the God commissions them, sends them through Moses. The 12 spies are chosen. Josh and Caleb are in the group, and they go out. And then when they return, Numbers 13.25 reads this. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. They came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, well, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruits. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites. They dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell in the sea along the Jordan. Uh, and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become as prey. Oh, would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us. That's because God had promised to do that, right? It is a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Yahweh. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregations said to stone them with stones, but the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting and the people of Israel. So you'll note here, what's the dividing line? The dividing line is not about an, an issue of attitude. The dividing line is whether or not you believe God at his word. 
This is a matter of faith versus unbelief. And so this is what God then says in verse 11 of chapter 14. So Yahweh said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a great a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses said to Yahweh, "Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought us up to the uh, brought this people in in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them." And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard your fame will say it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them and that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means Clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and to the third and the fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And isn't it just amazing here? So God at this point is just, you know, ready to act in judgment because of Israel's unbelief, their refusal to believe it, God, to believe that he has chosen for them good and that he desires for them and is working in their lives to work good for them to take them out of slavery and put them into their own land and they aren't believing god at all they think god has it out for them that god has tricked them brought them into the wilderness to die and so god wants to act in judgment and then moses prays back to god the words that he heard about god when God caused his glory to pass by him while he was hidden in the cleft of the rock, that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into this land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea." So you'll note then that Caleb, Joshua, they believed their outcome is going to be different than the remainder of the uh, 12 spies. The 10 who didn't believe, they will not see the promised land. Josh and Caleb will. Why? Because they believed God. They trusted his word. They believed that he was acting to save them, not to harm them, and that his, that he's good on his promises, whereas the others, they just didn't believe at all. And so this is not about some destiny that God's trying to work in your life unless the destiny you're referring to is eternal life in Jesus Christ through the forgiveness of your sins, which comes to you through the preaching of the good news that Christ has bled and died for you and for your sins and promises you pardon and peace and eternal life with him in the new earth. See, that's what this is, text is really pointing to and is really all about. 
Brian Houston is making about some dream, destiny, purpose thingy, something vague, you know, promise in the abstract, which this text is not about at all. I think you get the point. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're going to head to Manchester and uh, Glenn Barrett explaining to us how... Uh, you have to believe for greater. Greater what? I don't know, but you know, that's what he's going to tell us. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hey, everyone. It's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society, and it's, it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee, and it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out! We got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. 
right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Let's do this right, though. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via audacious church manchester in the uk uh, glenn barrett presiding and you have to believe for greater yeah greater now a little bit of a note here um, when you hear phrases like you have to and you must or you shouldn't, or you can, or you cannot. Um, that Those are generally statements in the Bible that are part of God's law. Thou shalt not, thou must, you know, things like that. That's God's law. So immediately, you know, I'm kind of asking the question, where in the scripture does God say, thou shalt believe for greater that's a weird commandment when you start putting it in those terms. Yeah, I think you're already beginning to see where this whole thing is going to fall apart. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Glenn Barrett. And you have to believe for greater. Here we go. We all go through seasons where we work hard at something and maybe come up short and maybe think to ourselves, well, that'll do in the language of average and, and mediocrity. But I think every single one of us have a goal and a desire within us to achieve something greater, to be something greater than what we were in 2018, which is why we're declaring that 2019 is going to be a different year. Not more of the same, but something different, something remarkable. You're declaring that 2019 is not going to be more of the same, but it's going to be something. Not We don't know what, but something different. It could be different to take place this year. And so we're declaring in context with a different year, we're declaring from Scripture that it's God's plan and desire for us to be greater, to live a greater type of year, a greater year. Really? Scripture says that. Which Scripture says that we need to live a greater type of year this year? You know, I know somebody who is uh, suffering from a terminal disease. They're not going to make it through this year. In fact, this year will not be a greater year for them. They will be dying this year. They won't make it to Christmas. They'll be lucky if they make it to Easter. Than ever before. I wonder what greater looks like for you. I wonder what greater looks like for you in your family and relationships. What does greater look like for you in... What does greater look like for me? What kind of vagaries is this? Jesus speaks into this in John chapter 14, 12 to 14. Here's what he says. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus speaking... 
Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. They will do even greater things than these. Pause. Re- yeah, greater things than what things? What's Jesus referring to there? That we're going to have a greater 2019? Um, no, that's not what Jesus is referring to. Rewind. Reread. Jesus speaking. Whoever believes in me. Whoever. There's a beautiful little Greek word there for whoever. And it is our English word, whoever. Mm, yeah, there's some profundity there. Um, so John chapter 14, verse 12 is the, uh, the referent. So let's see if we can back this up, apply some context. The three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. And see if we can uh, sort out what's going on here. So we'll back up to verse 8. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In his name means according to his will, according to his... What What was the works that Jesus did? Now, if you're thinking, hmm, well, you know, Jesus seemed to be all about, you know, performing miracles. Nope, that's not really what Jesus was about. Um, you know, Jesus did perform miracles, by the way, no doubt about that. Nobody is questioning that. But that's really not the gist of what Jesus came to do. Um, the works that he did had to do with his, well, preaching and his teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me, let me uh, read to you from the Gospel of Luke. I'll start at verse 31 for our context. And we'll note then that what, what Luke writes in Luke 4 uh, regarding what Jesus came to do. These are his works. So Jesus went, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and as he was teaching them on the Sabbath, they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports of him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue, entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and, and they appealed to him on her behalf, and she stood over her. And he stood over and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had 
any uh, who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them, and he healed them. He's sitting there going, well, see, Jesus was all about, you know, casting out demons and healing the sick and stuff. Yeah, we keep reading, though. And so demons also came out of many crying, and you are the son of God, but he rebuked them. Yeah, and he would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Messiah or the Christ. So when it was day, he departed and he went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and, and came to him and he would and would have kept him from leaving them. But Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Uh-huh. Yeah, Jesus was sent for the purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. So, you know, whoever does, you know, whoever believes in me, greater works than these will he do. You know, think of it this way. When Jesus... Uh, after his death, burial, resurrection, right before his ascension, how many followers were there of Jesus? 500. And yet, Peter and Paul preached the good news of Christ, not in Judea only, but around the whole Roman Empire. And how many tens of thousands were brought to faith in Christ through their preaching? And their teaching. You see, Peter and Paul, I mean, they did far greater works than Jesus did. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So the evangelist who goes out and preaches the good news of Christ, doing the work that Christ did, asking anything in his name, in in regard to that, yeah, he's going to answer that. That's what's being referred to here. This is not about you having a, a fantabularific 2019, just spectacularly greater in 2019 than it was in 2018, and, the, and that you have to believe for these greater... That's not what this text is about at all. Uh, Glenn Barrett is already far, far, far into the weeds. Whoever in 2019 believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these even greater things than what Jesus did because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name. I will do whatever you ask in my name. I will do, come on audacious church, whatever you ask in my name. I want to win the lottery, Lord. I will do whatever you ask. Is that what he's saying? No. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Church, what I want you to see here is this, is that it's not only maybe your desire to live a greater year, but God also has a desire that this year you will live a greater year. You can't... That's not what that text means. And and it's absurd on its face. Because how many generations of Christians across the two millennia of church history have been born, hit the hit their stride in their peak in their youth, had their decline, went into old age, and died? Mm-hmm. How many generations has that happened to? And so his the way he's handling this text is absurd on its face. It cannot 
possibly mean what it is that he's saying this text means. There's no way you can make it mean that at all. And that's not what the text means anyway. So Glenn is uh, scratching itching ears and making promises for God that God hasn't made and making promises that God is not obligated to keep because God ain't promising this, nor is God demanding this or requiring this of people. This is this is abysmal what he's doing. Actually, read scripture and not realize how much God is into you living a greater life, living a life of abundance. Now, <laughs> yeah, this is some scratching ears going on here. God's really into you, into you living abundance. Last week, we looked at John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I have come that you... Out of context. ...but have life and have life more abundantly, have life to the full. And we said this, in order to have abundant life, you have to abandon life. You have to abandon life as you know it to receive abundant life in God. How do you figure? Your take-home thought is this, one phrase, you have to believe... For greater things. That's not what John 10.10 is teaching at all. Church, in 2019, what I want to pour into you is belief and courage that you have to believe for greater things. It's one thing... So if I don't, am I going to burn in hell? Not believing that you will see greater things. It's one thing me as your pastor believing that you will see greater things. But you have to believe for greater things in 2019. I want to encourage you to believe it in your family, in your finances, in your investment, in your... In my finances. Job, in your career, in everything you do. Let me say it again. You have to believe. You do. No one else can do the doing for you. You have to believe for greater things. Now, I want to answer two questions today. The first question is this, is what does belief mean? What is belief? Because Jesus said, if you believe in me, what is belief? The second question we're going to answer very briefly because of time is simply this, is what does it mean his works? What works? Because he says, if you believe in me, you will do the works I have been doing and do even greater things. So what is belief, firstly? And secondly, what works is Jesus talking about? Number one, first question, what's belief? What does it mean? Faith, trust in Christ, trusting in the promises that he's really given. To believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe in God? I want to suggest to you today that it's more than just belief in belief. Yeah, belief in belief is called fideism, belief in your faith or faith in your faith. That's a, misgu- that's a misplaced faith. That can't save you. People are good at believing in belief. I believe in belief. I want to suggest to you that believing in belief is just simply not enough. My favorite verse as a teenager was from James chapter 2, verse 19. It says this, you believe there's one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. 
I mean, even the demons in hell, even the very devil himself, they all believe in Jesus Christ. They all believe in God. They've seen him. They've seen his works. They were there. They saw him at the cross. They saw him rise from the dead. Even the devil believes in Jesus. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus as Jesus uses this phrase in John chapter 14? Even Justin Bieber has his believers And of course, believers, we know, are the fans. They're the people who are on Justin's side. I want to suggest to your church that this ain't a fan club. That we've got to be more than just fans of Jesus Christ. We've got to be more than just fans of God. This is more than just some groupie gathering on a Sunday because we're Jesus fan club. No, no, it's a lot more than that. What? Yeah, you're not giving me any kind of a biblical definition of what faith is. The Greek word pistis means trust. What does it mean to believe? A few things. It means a few things. Three things. Firstly, yeah, three things. Firstly, it means this. Belief is based in evidence. Belief is based in... No, not exactly true. So the three things that make up saving faith as opposed to demonic faith, because he did make reference to the fact that the demons believe in Jesus. They, they, They really do. Um, they know that he exists. They saw the creation. Uh, they knew who he was when he showed up, and they and they said so. Uh, so, how do you make a distinction between saving faith in Christ and demon faith? There are three component parts. Um, uh, so, the first part is notitia, knowledge. You have to actually know something. You're like, so somebody says to you, "Jesus Christ loves you. God loves you. He's bled and died for your sins. He's risen from the grave." And he's calling you to repentance. So there's a factual case in that sense as far as the knowledge of what it is that you are, you know, you're hearing in the proclamation of the gospel. The second part then is assent that what is said is true. And this, by the way, these first two parts are, uh, you, the demons can say this. So Jesus bled and died uh, on the cross, uh, you know, and uh, he rose from the grave. And he ascended into heaven. This is most certainly true. And the demons say, yep, that's absolutely right. And so those two parts make up what we would consider demonic faith, which isn't really faith, but that's those two parts. Now, what distinguishes a Christian from the demons is the, is the gift that God gives for you to be able to say that not only did Jesus die and rise again, but that Jesus died and rose again for me. So you have notitia, knowledge, assensus, assent that the facts are true. And the last part is called fiducia. And that is a, a trust that, that what is proclaimed in the gospel is not just some abstract historical facts, but, or the, but instead that these facts are historically true. And the theological impact is that it is for you, for your forgiveness, for your salvation. And that's the part the demons cannot say. I don't know where Glenn Barrett's going to go here, but it doesn't sound to me like he's familiar with the historic, biblical definition of what saving faith is and what constitutes it. Evidence. Jesus says in verse 12, whoever believes in me. Now, if we had time, we do not. 
But if we had time, we could look back a few verses in John chapter 14, and you'd see there's a conversation between Thomas, Philip, and Jesus. You ever been in a situation, friend, where you're trying to convey something to somebody and they're just not getting it? You ever been in a situation like that? Maybe you're teaching one of your children a, some maths equation or, or you're just talking to someone. You're trying to explain Brexit to someone. Uh, or you're trying to engage in some sort of either political or non-political or spiritual or non-spiritual, emotional, non-emotional. If you're a vegan and you're trying to convince non-vegans that veganism is the best way to go, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're trying to convey veganism. It's the greatest thing on the planet. And the person's looking at you like the penny's not dropping. It's like, you, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, come on. You know what I'm talking about? Not exactly. I'm not talking about vegans. I'm talking about just in life. Jesus in verses 5 to 11, he's having this kind of conversation with Philip and with Thomas. And you can, they're struggling in their levels of belief. They're struggling with their conviction. And you can almost sense the mounting frustration in the conversation to the point where Jesus is effectively saying to them, he's saying, Philip, Thomas, if you don't believe in your future, then at least look at my past. That is not at all what Jesus was saying to them. If you don't believe in your future, look at my past. That is not even a remotely plausible paraphrase of what Christ said. Audacious Church, 2019. If you don't believe in a greater future for you in 2019, if you struggle to believe for greater, if you struggle with faith, with hope and optimism, if that is a genuine struggle for you, then I want to suggest you pause for a moment and look at Jesus' past. Look at the evidence. Look at his track record. Because when you look at his track record, you get a ballpark. You get a reference for the level with which you can believe. As you know, I support Manchester City. There are other teams around the place, but I support Manchester City. Born in Manchester, raised in Australia, at 15, moved back to Manchester, got my first season ticket as a 15-year-old boy at the Kipax Main Road. All my life, even as a child living in Australia, City were my team. I say that to say this, I know the culture of the team. I know the culture of the club. And we have a saying at Manchester City that goes like this, typical City. And the reason that saying exists is because in our history, there were games that we should have won that we lost. That if anyone was going to blow it, typical City were going to blow it. In fact, I heard it over Christmas as all the Liverpool fans and United fans were abusing me on social media because City lost three games on the trot and now Liverpool are going to win the Premier League. People saying on the radio, typical City. Why? It's because there are historic moments in the past Evidence of past things that create a reference point. Jesus is saying here in John 14, if you struggle to believe in yourself, if you struggle to believe for greater in 2019, then take a moment, don't think about yourself, think about him. Think about his track record. You see, by John chapter 14, he'd already done miracles. 
He'd raise the dead. He'd heal the sick. He'd open deaf ears. He'd open blind eyes. He was good at walking on water, calming storms. He was feeding people miraculously out of small bits of of bread and fish. And Jesus is saying, if you can't believe in yourself, if you can't believe in your New Year's resolutions, look at my track record. Jesus was not talking at all in any sense referring to New Year's resolutions and having a better year. That's absolutely not at all what he was talking about. By the way, the name of the technique uh, that he's engaging in as far as Bible twisting is called eisegesis. That's reading things into the biblical text that are not there. Look at what I have done. Friend, before you get frustrated in 2019 about what God has not yet done, take a moment, write down in your gratitude journal everything he has done. Take a moment. My gratitude journal? I don't keep a gratitude journal. What? To think about what he achieved in 2018. Take a moment to think about what he did 10 years ago in your life and 15 years ago and 20 years ago because you'll find that when you begin to celebrate what God has done, you begin to get faith for what he can do. It's bl- Says what text? None of the texts you've referenced say this. Belief in evidence. Belief in evidence. Belief in evidence? No, I I have belief in Christ. I believe in the eyewitness testimony that he rose from the grave, that he bled and died for my sins, and that, that because I believe in him, he's given me that faith that I have eternal life. Belief in evidence. Listen, there are thousands of people through the life of Audacious Church. There's evidence, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of bits of evidence to support the claim that God is God, that God is good, that God is alive, that God has got a plan, that God has got a purpose. So instead of allowing frustration to get the better of us, I want to encourage you, look at the evidence. Yeah, so apparently yelling makes this true, and I think he's using a bullpen also, people who are volunteers to goo and God and you know when he says something something supposedly profound what's one thing he did you can give him praise for come on audacious church don't go quiet on me what's one thing that you can give God praise for just one thing and I want us to do that right now all across this place would you stand to your feet I want you to think about one thing one bit of evidence one thing God has done in your life and I want you to give God a shout a praise go come on let's give him praise let's give him praise you have to believe for greater things You have to believe for greater things. So not only do I want, is belief found in evidence, but I want to suggest to you as well, secondly, you can grab a seat, that we have to believe in his character and nature. Don't just believe in his works, the evidence of his works. Believe in his character and nature. Now let me tell you why this is important. It's important Because if we only believe in in the works of God, then what do we do when we pray about something and the very opposite happens? What do we do when we prayed for that job, but we didn't get that job? I mean, what do we do when we prayed for that person who was sick, but they didn't get well? And then that person struggles and their faith Their faith oscillates and and they're in and they're out and they're up and they're down because they only believed in evidence. They only believed in work, didn't choose to believe. See, he has no idea what saving faith comprises. As a result of it, I just feel like we're 
at drift at sea without a rudder and we're just being blown any old direction that his mind wants to blow us at this point. In his character and nature. Last week, we gave you four things about God. I gave you four things to help kind of fight the devil's PR company who said that, you know, the devil's a party animal and God is a killjoy. I gave you four facts about God. Number one, God invented party. Number two, God invented sex. Number three, music was made in heaven. And number four, alcohol was a miracle. You may remember that. So I'm going to give you four more things about God this week. Four things to help you trust in his character and in his nature. Number one is this. First thing about God, wherever you go, God is with you. Yeah, he's omnipresent, that's for sure. You know this, Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. Psalm 139, 8-10. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths. Another translation. In hell itself, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, I settle on the far side of the sea in Australia, New Zealand. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Church, wherever you go. God is with you. There is nothing hidden. There is nothing silent. There is nothing private. Some people say, well, I either want him with me or I don't want him with me. Too bad. He's with you all the time. Audacious church, God is with you. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, God is with you. If you're going to a new job interview this week, you're a little bit nervous. God is with you. I want you to know that as you reach the end of every month and the business, are are you reaching the goals and the targets? God is with you. When you put your head on the pillow at night and all of a sudden the worries and the stresses and the concerns of life begin to invade your mind and your soul, God is with you. Will he get to the cross as evidence of God's love? You know, I'm just wondering. With you. Audacious church, when you are walking through a valley of difficulty and depression and sadness, God is with you. And don't forget, when you're on the mountaintop and life is a success, God is with you. You you can't shake him. You can't escape him. It doesn't matter where you go. He'll never leave you. The Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with you. God is with you. Come on, I said God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. God. So now you're manipulating the people there for a response. Got it. Is with you. God is with you. God is with you. If you just write one thing on your mirror, write this. God is with me. God is with me. If you're going to get another tattoo, get it down your arm. God is with me. God is with me. God is with me. Number one, God is with you. Number two is this, is whatever you do, God loves you. Romans 8, you've heard me preach on this. I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future. Is there any way in which sin may sever our relationship with God? A false doctrine, an apostasy and rebellion. I just have to throw it out there. I have to ask. Nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And the Apostle Paul, when he writes this, he's thinking about all the things he wants to list. Nor sin, nor addiction nor habits, nor brokenness, nor depression, nor... And so what... You're adding those, yeah. ...does is this, is he summarizes it all with this phrase, nor anything else. He's putting all of life into one big bucket, he's shaking it up, and he's saying this, 
will be able to separate you, none of them, from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The love that is in Christ. Okay. Yeah, notice the, uh, the distinction, the modifier. Whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, whatever you will do, God loves you. Humanity teaches us that what we have to do for love is we have to chase it. We have to seek it. We have to run after it. I mean, this one over here, we've been married 24 years now, but she played hard to get. For the first two years that she knew me, she ignored me. And then I discovered she thought I was too childish. Me, too childish. Immature. And I pursued her, and I pursued her, and I wore her down. I mean, I won her heart. And we started dating. And three days later, she finished the relationship. Heartless, cruel. You got to chase love. Are you lucky in love or you're not lucky in love? How many relationships and marriages do we know about today? It's a, it's a, it's an, it's a normal thing in society, isn't it? Marriages come and marriages go. And, 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 and our problem on a human level, friend, is this, is when we see love, we see conditions. I have to do this to earn that love. I have now, to. Scripture's clear. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Now, one of the major issues I'm having with this sermon is it's not grounded in biblical texts. It's him kind of sloganizing and yelling at people. And then when he does get to a biblical text, oh, he misquotes it horrifyingly. Uh, we're not getting any sound biblical definitions of anything. And uh, a lot of screaming at us with the intended result that you're going to respond properly to the way he's yelling at us. Do this to earn that ring on that finger. There's certain things that I do. But let me explain God. God is love. Yep, that's what John, First John says. God loves you. It's because God is love. Bless your church. Let these words wash over you again, please. God loves you. He loves you. He's disappointed. No, no, he, he loves you. Let's talk about the cross now. He's angry. No, no, God loves you. God loves you. We're believing in his evidence, but we're believing in his character and nature that wherever you go, God is. Whatever you do, God loves you. Thirdly, whenever you need help, God is your great help. The best prayer you can ever pray is this. Help! You don't need to address it. Dear Father God in heaven, I have some issues. that uh, My issues, I, I've been a Muppet, and I understand that I, I, I broke some of your covenantal and spiritual and righteous laws, and I really don't know. No, you don't need to do that. God knows when you're talking to him. Yeah, um... I'd lose the pomp, but yeah, still confess your sin. I 
That'd be some salient advice there. Help! I love this. Uh, uh, when you're in the middle of it, you just got to talk to him. They say about worry. Most of us, 40% of the things we worry about never happen. 40%. 30% of things we worry about are things in the past we can't change. That's what we call the circle of no control. We spend our time, our thinking, our emotions in the circle of no control. We can't control it, but we worry about it. 12% are irrational worries about health. 10% are petty miscellaneous worries. I can give you the definition of petty and miscellaneous at another time. 8% are real legitimate worries. We spent 92% wondering if that 92% fits in the 8%. The top three things that we worry about from three, two, and one, third thing we worry about the most is money. Number two is this, health. And the the, the thing that most people worry about is their future. Their future. Jesus speaks. Matthew 6. So, Audacious Church in 2019, do not worry. I want you to notice, not a suggestion. It's almost like a command. Do not worry. The law says, do not speed. And when you do, faithfully and consistently, then at some point, something's going to go wrong. Now, this is where we would be wise to pay attention to Christ's sermon on this topic. Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus addresses uh, what's at the root of worrying. What is at the root of worrying? Lack of faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, uh, the issue. So Jesus says in Matthew six twenty five. Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or what... Uh, nor about your body or what you put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Well, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Hmm? Yeah, see, worry and anxiety are a manifestation of a lack of faith in God's goodness. His mercy, His grace, that He cares for you. So Jesus then says, Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, Well, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, not your own, His, which is given by faith, and all these things will be added to you. So, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, Jesus' solution, trust him. Trust God. Stop worrying. Have faith. There's going to be a flash. The police are going to knock on your door. You're going to go to court. It is a command. Do not speed. 
Same with this. Don't worry. Oh, you can worry. But if you live with worry, you live with the consequences of it. With a lot, which is why Jesus is, is he's blatant, he's bold, he's, he's audacious. Do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. He knows that you need them. Look at this. But seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness, which is a gift given by faith. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. I love it. Did you skip the part about seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You missed that part. He's saying, don't worry. He says, seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness. So instead of the very first thing you do is, is go to the medicine cabinet or the first thing you do is, is phone a friend. What about if we took a pause to step back and say, hang on a minute, first thing I'm going to do, seek first his kingdom. You know, tomorrow when the envelopes come through the mail and it's got a, a see-through window, you know it's a bill. Come on, you know what the bill looks like, don't you? Good things never come, you know, in, in those ones with a, clear, with a clear, we should change the audacious church envelopes. Do we send letters out these days? If we do, we should send, just change it, make it look like a bill, but make it good news. Instead of putting it with the other unopened bills or opening and stressing about how I'm going to pay for the bill, what would happen, friend, if for a moment you took a step back and go, hang on a minute, the word of the Lord is this, don't worry, seek first his kingdom. What would happen if you take that envelope for a moment and you hold it in your hand, that envelope, and you say to yourself, well, God, uh, I don't know what's in this, but I'm glad you're my provider. I'm glad you're with me. I'm glad you're faithful. I'm glad you're good. And God, even though sometimes bad stuff happens to good people, and sometimes, God, I, I, I make mistakes and I have to live with the consequences of something. Make mistakes. How, how about sin? The decisions I made, hence the bill in my hand. I want to thank you, God, that you don't hold my sin according to my account. I want to thank you that you're good. You're going to talk about the cross now, right, Glenn? God of light, you're the God of love. What would happen if for a moment we made a decision to seek first his kingdom? Yeah, notice here, you know, so you've really fallen short. You haven't done what Christ has commanded. So here's the solution just next time, you know, set it up in your mind that when you're going to get it right the next time. Rather than confessing that you have fallen short and need to be forgiven by Christ for having fallen short, I, I'm just going to skip over the confess, repent, be forgiven. I'm just going to skip over that and I'm going to, I'm going to do better next time. That's not the solution to our sin problems. I'll tell you what would happen. We would live a life without worry weighing us down. Now, friends, some of you are so full of worry, you don't even know what it's like to live worry-free. Let me say this. You can live worry-free. You don't have to be stress-free, but you can live worry-free. The Bible promises that. What's stress? Stress is a natural thing. There's stress on this stage right now. The, 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 the poles underneath, they're, 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 they're holding the stress, everything, the tension, the, the guitar strings, the, there's stress taking place on that seat right now, but the seat is not worried, but there is stress. Jesus says, come to me if you're weary and heavy burden, I will give you rest. There'll still be stress. What? This is just annoying now. But without the worry, how do I define worry? Worry is practical atheism. 
with my mouth on a Sunday, I say, God, you're greater. But then on Sunday afternoon, my mind is filled with worry. My mind is full of thinking that says, God is not there. Because I only believed in his works. I didn't believe in his character and his nature. (laughs) Oh, silly me. I was only believing in his works and not his character and his nature. Huh? I want you to know, fourthly, about God, and this is beautiful, is whatever happens, good can come from it. Friend, if you are just going to believe in the evidence, just believe in the works, then then this is going to be a struggle for you. But if you choose today to leave this place believing in the character and the nature of God, then you too will discover that whatever happens, good can come from it. Now, the Greek word for whatever is the English word whatever. Which means every single... Yeah, you have such profound insight into the Greek language there, yeah. You're, you're such a scholar. single thing, every worry, every concern, every bad thing. That makes, me want me to get, that makes me want to get my praise on, actually. Because whatever means whatever. Have a chat with Mark and Michelle Steele. I mean, you weren't there in the room with them when the doctor said, Michelle, you've got bone marrow failure. You weren't there with them when they started to go through the whole conversation and, and that initial, what does this mean, bone marrow failure? Here's, here's, here's what's going to happen. Here is the likely outcome. And we understand why the doctors need to speak this way. Here's the likely outcome. But at some point in that moment, they chose to activate faith. Bone marrow failure. I believe in his works and I believe in his character and nature and I know that whatever happens, good can come from it. Good can come from it. Romans 8.28, we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Good can come from anything. God can do it. That's why we believe, friend, in his character and nature. Don't just believe in the works. Don't just believe in the evidence of what he has done. Believe in his character and nature. He can bring good. He does bring good out of every situation. Mark and Michelle, and here they are now, healed, whole, None of the consequences, none of the side effects of, of, of the hair loss and the different things of what the doctors had said and what goods come out of it. It's not just healing in her body, but the other thing that's good is he was sitting on the second row in the first service this morning. Alan's sitting on the second row. Alan, who's an amazing man, who went into hospital with bone marrow failure, who ended up meeting up with Michelle, who ended up getting saved and connecting his life to Christ. And now he sits on the second row as a testimony to God's goodness. Friend, I want you to know that if God can do it for Michelle, God can do it for Alan, God can do it for you, God can do it for you and your son. All right, now now the band's playing. Yeah, this uh, w- w- there's manipulation going on on multiple levels here. Situation because God is a God. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. Come on, let's give Him a shout of praise in this place. Come on, let's give him a shout of praise in this place. We've got to believe in the evidence. 
You've got to believe in his character and nature. Whosoever believes in me, the evidence of what he's done, his character and his nature. But I want to suggest that belief is shown in doing. What does it mean to believe? It's shown in doing. Because it says in verse 12 of John 14, if you believe in me, you'll do the works I have done. So Audacious Church, I say this, if you really believe in him, you'll do what he did. If you really believe in Jesus, you'll do the works he did. You'll do what he did. And I guess society at large is aware of this. This is why that term hypocrisy has come in. Of people who kind of profess one thing, but actually live something else. My hope would be that if you spent time with me and Sophie, you would discover that what we are here is what we are everywhere else. And my prayer is this, is that you would be the same. That what you profess and what you say on a Sunday is who you are on a Monday. And I know there are stress points and tension points. But if I could just pause and pastorally make a comment to the person who swore at our car park team and has a habit of doing that and speaking in vile language to our car park team, what they're trying to do is simply help you to park your car. And my concern is this, if that's how we act on a Sunday over here with people who love you, what are we like on a Monday to a Friday? Friend, there has to come a moment in life where our belief is shown in our doing. Yeah, what's missing, Glenn, here is a clear preaching of God's law to convict people of real sins, a clear preaching of Christ and him crucified for our sins, belief and trust in that forgiveness and the reconciliation that comes that Christ has won for us on the cross, and then the fruit of that repentance in our sanctification. Uh huh. This thing is all over the place. William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, probably one of the greatest humanitarian ministries on the planet and still is still amazing today. Here's what he said. He said, faith and works should travel side by side, step by step, like the legs of men walking. First faith and then works, and then faith again and then works again until they can scarcely distinguish which is the one and which is the other. James 2, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well felt, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. I say this, show me your faith without deeds. And I will show you my faith by my deeds. You see, friend, faith, belief produces work. Or can I put it another way? Work, work proves faith. I love that analogy of General William Booth. Faith works. Faith works. Faith. Yeah, the issue here, you is um, you haven't properly defined faith. Nope. 
And now you're teaching works without a proper foundation of what faith is. And as a result of it, this is a hot mess, a confusion of law and gospel. Works. Faith works. Now make no mistake, we are saved by faith. There's nothing that we could do to access eternal life with God. Nothing. This is true. There's nothing we could do. If there was something we could do in our own ability and strength, then Jesus would not have had to come 2,000 years ago and die on the cross for your sins and my sins. Right on. So I, I kind of was hoping he would get to this. I mean, he was took him long enough. We're just about done here. So it's almost like an obligatory nod to Jesus. If works could save us, then that would nullify the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are saved simply by faith. Yep. There's a moment we sit in a church service or we sit with a friend. You know where you were. I guess you remember where you were sitting. When somebody told you about Jesus and, and, and the penny dropped and it was like, <gasps> I believe. The Bible calls that saving faith. That's something that God put in you. Yep. It wasn't your own clever intelligence personal ambition that made you believe God put saving faith in there. We are saved, the Bible says, through faith. Step one, faith. But then there comes a moment where my works, my life, catches up with the revolution that's going on in the inside. So I work. Works naturally flow from saving faith. Without works, there is no there is no faith. There's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't do good works. Now the question immediately is, what's a good work? Read the back end of like Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's what defines good works. Look at the Ten Commandments uh, for further details. And yet I have faith and I work and I trust God. So I tithe. I have faith. So I forgive. I'm believing in God's plans and purposes for my greater year. So I learn to live my life with no regrets. And, And it's this faith and works combination that the Bible speaks about time and again. James 2, 21. You believe there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Which is why I say that belief is shown in doing. Well, that's just church. Faith is not rhetoric. Faith is not ethereal. Faith is not conceptual. There's nothing passive about believing. It's active. It's a doing. Which is why I say again, you have to believe for something greater. It won't just happen. So now we're back to this nonsense about having to believe for something greater in 2019. No, the two do not follow. The two are not connected. There is no promise in Scripture that 2019 is that you've got to believe for greater things in it. 
and you using the gospel and what Christ has done for us to then flip the table and turn it into a command to believe for greater things than this year, that that's just reprehensible and blasphemous. It'll happen as we partner with God through faith and works and faith and works and faith and works. And so I seek first His kingdom, understanding that He will add everything unto me. I continue to work. I continue to work to the best of my ability, understanding that when I fail, I believe in His character and nature. God is with me. He will never leave me. He loves me. He's got a plan and a purpose for me. That's what it means to believe. So Jesus says, if you believe, in me and do the works I have been doing and I am out of time to cover that but his works are found in Luke chapter 4 the spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus speaking because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor friend it's not just talking about poor in terms of clothing and housing and things like that it's talking about people who are poor in spirit those who don't know the Lord To do his works literally means to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That's what I said at the beginning of the sermon. Why at the very end here do you finally clarify that? This whole sermon would have been way different. The answer is actually quite obvious if you go back and listen. He is stuck on trying to insert this idea that we've got to believe God for greater things in 2019. And he kept it vague until the very end. Yet he was able to connect two very clear biblical dots that the works that Christ is referring to is the preaching of the good news of the gospel. You can do it through words, sharing about Jesus, or you can simply do it through your lifestyle. It makes no difference. But really what the Bible's endorsing here is that our works match our faith. If our faith says one thing, then our works should be as close as possible to matching what we declare on a Sunday. (laughs) No. (laughs) You know, you give him a compliment that he figures something out and then he just shows that he really doesn't get it. Uh. I refuse to be filled with worry. My life is full of stress, but I refuse to worry. You know why? Because faith says, do not worry. Works want to worry, but works understand, no, 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 no. I can believe in his character and nature. He got me this far. He'll get works want to worry. Huh? Me through the God who got me to this point is the God who'll take me further in his plans and purposes. We understand when it talks about works, proclaiming good news to the poor church. I want you to know your greater things is great news for people in Manchester. I love what he says here in Luke chapter 4. It says to speak of freedom for the prisoners. People who are bound. People who are just locked in, caught up. Yeah, the prisoners under the dominion of darkness, the rule of the devil. Restricted. And I just know, I'm just aware that through Audacious Church, there are people and people watching online as well. And in our Chester campus and in our new Berry location, in a few weeks' time, there are people who are just locked up. Bound. Past, present, future. Worry. Addiction. Stuff. Next week, we're going to lean into this a little bit. We're going to talk about greater freedom. 
There's a greater freedom that we can all have. In a few weeks' time, we're going to be launching a fantastic ministry called Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery is all about people living. Yeah, Celebrate Recovery is a 12-step program that mangles the Beatitudes and turns them into 12 steps for recovery. It's it's just a oh, horrific mangling of Scripture. And be, becoming and living free. Jesus says in Luke chapter 4 here to, to speak of recovery of sight for the blind. That's, that's, that's talking about vision. It's talking about seeing things you've never seen before, about having a future and a hope. No person who ever committed suicide committed suicide whilst having a positive outlook for their future. That's why Jesus said that actually what I want to do is I want to bring recovery of sight for the blind. I want your eyes to be open that you can see. Church, I believe that it's our job as Christians to help people see what God sees. Loves you. And he says here to tell us the the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is the year of Jubilee. It's every 50 years in Israel. It was the year where all debts were paid. All debts were canceled. And people could live free. And folks, I want you to know in 2019, this can be a year of the Lord's favor and jubilee for each and every one of us. Forgive. Uh, Yeah, the jubilee points to the year of God's favor, which is a very long year. It's been going on for 2,000 years. Um, you know, where there's forgiveness, mercy, for, you know, cancellation of debts, you know, return to your inheritance, all of that kind of stuff. The Jubilee is a picture of salvation. Why? It's a year of Jubilee. Forgive others. Why? Because the Lord first forgave you. And we're declaring all these things over our church as we believe. And Luke chapter 4 continue to do the works that God has done. So I want to ask you this question. Who can you share the good news of Jesus with this week? You haven't really definitively shared it with the people of Audacious Church this week. And if you're nervous about even mentioning the word Jesus or God or church, how about this week just making sure that your work matches your faith? Turn up early. Be diligent. Be positive in conversation. Don't gossip. Don't allow conversation to, to spiral downwards. I, I, I love it at the football because when the boys around me swear, and boy do they swear, every time they swear, they stop and say, sorry, vicar. But they used to say that even before they knew what I did. I, I don't know. I just think there's something about our lives that can bring change to others. You have to believe for greater things. Would you stand with me across this place? Done. All right. Well, we got something like the gospel in there, um, but it was what was offered with the right hand was snatched up by the left. Yeah, and uh, this whole idea that, oh, we must, we've got to believe God for greater things in 2019, you know, as some kind of an implication from the text that he twisted. Oh, boy, laying a heavy burden on people indeed, not really setting them free, not clearly defining what faith is, not clearly proclaiming Christ and him crucified for our sins. He did get the part right about that we're saved by faith and not by our works, and he did rightly understand that uh, you know works flow from true saving faith. I mean, this is what Scripture says. You know, so it's it's like he he knows how to connect the dots in a general way, but can't draw the proper conclusions. 
very frustrating to listen to. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.